surprise, and welcome to the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. You knew we couldn't really stay away all of August, even though we're on hiatus. Uh, uh, and uh, so for people who just can't live without uh, the Cyber Law Podcast uh, in their lives, we've come up with uh, a couple of bonus episodes um, from our past. Uh, and, and this episode is one I was really happy about, uh, uh, which was an April 2015 interview with Joe Nye, the Harvard professor and foreign policy expert, uh, who's really done some uh, uh, great thinking about cyber warfare. So we talk in this episode uh, about cyber war strategy, the problem of attribution, the rise of China, and a bunch of other things. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it, and it stands up pretty well, uh, uh, considering that it was all recorded more than three years ago. Joe's uh, bio is daunting, Rhodes Scholarship, Harvard faculty almost immediately after getting his doctorate there, dean of the Kennedy School, three different tours in government at state, at the National Intelligence Council, and at the Secret at the Defense Department, uh, uh, and it uh, looks like medals at every one of them as well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> very impressive, uh, and Still writing an enormous amount. I mean, your your output is prodigious, and at the same time, you're a hiker and a squash player and a fly fisher. Uh, oh well, that would account <laughs> for the patience. Uh, um, wh- where do you hike in the whites? White Mountains. We have a place in New Hampshire. Yeah, so I'm a I'm a four thousand footer club. Oh, member. good for you. I, I I haven't I haven't bagged them all myself. Yeah, yeah. I it's it's becoming unfashionable to bag them mm. because they want to encourage people not to go up all the mountains. Yeah. I, I, I did some of them on cross-country skis, though. That was That's uh, even more impressive. Yeah, well, the getting up was, was hard, <laughs> but getting down was crazy. Yeah. Uh, okay, so I, what I, I wanted to... It's called skating on stilts, isn't it? <laughs> could be. Uh, <laughs> actually, I think I perfected something called the... Uh, uh, the it's like the telemark, only it's the vegetable turn, where as you come, uh, you, you slab across, and when you want to turn, you grab the nearest tree and just swing around. <laughs> anyway, so let it, but back to cyber. Uh, you wrote a really interesting piece about comparing nuclear, the challenges of adjusting to nuclear uh, uh, weapons and the challenge of adjusting to uh, di- uh, to uh, uh, cyber weapons. And I, I've always been impatient with that. Uh, comparison because I feel as though it makes us too comfortable that, that mm-hmm. you know, we think, oh, well, we've managed nukes, so we can manage cyber, and I'm not at all convinced that that's true, but uh, you had some really interesting uh, uh, points there. Uh, uh, one thing I wasn't really quite convinced of, you said at one point, you said, well, this is not, cyber is not an existential threat, whereas nukes are, and uh, it's true, you could end civilization with a a nuclear exchange, uh, but you could kill an awful lot of people with a serious SCADA attack. Oh, I, if you live in Chicago, or I should say Boston, where we've had a, an extraordinary winter, and uh, somebody brings down the grid in February, yeah. uh, you can have a lot of dead people. I mean, there's no question about that. I guess what I meant by that comparison is that uh, uh, nuclear winter, which used to be one of the... Right. the uh, horror stories that scientists concocted uh, in the 1980s. 
I don't think you're going to have cyber winter in that same sense. But it, this is not to belittle cyber. Right. In fact, one of the points in that article that I tried to make is that these two technologies, nuclear and cyber, are totally different. And, yes. And many people say, therefore, don't waste time comparing them. I was interested more in what you might call a meta question. When you have a huge disruptive technology, how does a society learn about it? And yes. how long does it take? And when do you begin to get agreements? And what I concluded is it took about 20 years in nuclear. Yeah. And if you look at cyber, we haven't even reached our 20th anniversary if you date cyber from when the web takes off. Right. And thereby provides the substrata for economic interdependence. Although, you know, the best book on cyber spying ever written is the Cuckoo's Egg, uh, mm-hmm. I, which was, I think it was 1989. Yeah. The, oh, well, the, you know, having worms and security problems has been there right. for a long time. But I think it's, it, if you look at the graphs of how many people are using the internet, yeah, it, it really takes take, the hockey stick effect is in the late 90s. And once that takes off, it creates an interdependence, which an interdependence creates vulnerability. Right. And vulnerability creates insecurity. So I think I, I would date the the real uh, threats to security in a big way from the from the late 90s. So one of the things that I have spent time doing is thinking about exactly what you said: new technology, new weapons. How does the society adjust? And and. I'd recommend, I know you lived the nuclear stuff, but going back to look at how the prospect of bombers that could reach the cities of every major country changed everyone's view of the world. Uh, um, is it, it's, it's remarkable how big a deal that was. And I, I, I've said to people, imagine you're a policymaker who has just lived through the slaughter, the you know, meat grinder of trench warfare, and somebody comes up to you and says, it's 10 years later, and the next war, 10 years from now, is going to bring that meat grinder to your home and your family. Um, it, it actually makes uh, appeasement start to look pretty sensible. Well, and I think that was in the minds of somebody like uh, Neville Chamberlain. Yeah. But what is interesting is that uh, the amount of punishment that the British and the Germans accepted, made even yes. the, bo- the bomber will get through, it did. It didn't end the war. No, it, 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 it had horrible impact on civilian populations, right. but didn't win the war. Right. And I, I, that's perfectly possible as an outcome for cyber weapons, that we can all end up with, uh, you know, uh, no power in Chicago in the winter, and at the same time, uh, have it not affect who actually prevails in the conflict. Oh, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. I think the other thing I think is, it's interesting is, is I look back on, uh, nuclear technology was the assumptions that people made which in an area where technology is very volatile and how quickly they can turn around and be wrong. In 1946, and Bernard Brody wrote one of the first books on mm-hmm. doctrine or theory, the assumption was that atomic bombs, not hydrogen bombs, atomic bombs were very scarce. So you save them to bomb cities. Oh, yes. And because you couldn't and afford you, you'd it. probably need 20 to take yeah. out a big city. And then as you got the hydrogen bomb in the early 50s, all of a sudden destructive power was plentiful. Right. So it was no longer scarce. And then you began to say, let's target uh, forces, not cities. Right. And so the, the change in the technology moving from atomic to thermonuclear weapons uh, leads to a total change in doctrine. But then you have the point that McGeorge Bundy pointed out in the uh, 
in uh, his final book, is when you looked at the Cuban Missile Crisis, and he was watching mm-hmm. Kennedy right. up pretty closely, he said, all you need is one or two. The prospect of one or two going off in right. American City was enough for deterring Kennedy. Yeah, I'm not sure it would have deterred the Russians quite as much. Well, it might not deter the North Koreans. Right? That, well, I, I have said, yes, taking out their Internet is not going to yeah. deter them, that's for sure. And and even you know, destroying their infrastructure, mm-hmm. uh, they might say, you know, if it's a contest to see which society lasts longer eating grass, I think we're ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so it, one of the things you talked about is taking out the forces, because I, I think this second strike issue is something that I don't hear much about in uh, discussions of cyber war strategy, but it's it's every bit as scary uh, and as much an incentive to strike first as it is in a nuclear mm-hmm. uh, uh, strike, maybe more so. Um, and yet, um, when people talk about what's our nuclear our cyber strategy, you don't hear people talking about the incentive to strike first. I don't quite understand. Why. Well, one of the things that's intrigued me about uh, cyber war is what Thomas Ridd has said in his book. Mm-hmm. The title of the book may be a bit uh, overly stated: uh, "Nuclear war will not, uh, a cyber war will not take place." But what is interesting is it hasn't been used more. And if you ask why hasn't it been used more, I think it's because of the uncertainties. They're, I think the military, as they as they think about its use, uh, they realize that they don't know the full effects, and or how long they last, or how long they last, or how to control the escalation. So, it, it, to me, the interesting thing is there hasn't been more of it. So that's I I, I think I have a different view on that one. I, um, I agree with you. If you were if you were saying I, I want to launch an all-out attack on a country mm-hmm. and I want to use all my cyber weapons, what will be the impact? What can we count on? No one will know. I, uh, on the other hand, uh, I don't see a fear of escalation, I, uh, or at least I, 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 I. Yes, there's a fear of escalation, but that's not preventing use. That's just cabining the use. But we've seen, you know, I I think. GitHub is hard, the attack on GitHub is hard to see it in any context other than it's an act of military compulsion exercised against an American institution. Uh, the Sony attack was an exercise of military compulsion on Sony. Um, SANS attack was an exercise of power over uh, uh, Sheldon Adelson. Um, and, and then, of course, the DDoS attacks on American banks. Uh, uh, now, all of them, or many of them, were cabined, right? They were not all-out attacks mm-hmm. uh, because nobody knows how far they can go before they really piss everybody off here. Uh, but it's also true that every attack, or most of the attacks, have gotten stronger because we have not reacted particularly aggressively in response. Uh, well, I think I think you're right for for. What I would say are attacks that are below the the kinetic equivalent of, of, of a devastating right. uh, physical attack. Uh, I mean, if you look at the, the extent to which we have a doctrine, it says wars when finally when the president declares it. Yes, and uh, and then if you read the context around that, it will be something that will be the equivalent of a kinetic attack, which kills or takes lives, which would be the threshold where he's likely to declare it. So I think the things you mentioned are real, but they're not, they're but not, they're, they're, they're below war. a certain well, threshold. Well, they're not war because we didn't say they were war, right. in part, uh, and uh, they were 
probably calculated to avoid that mm-hmm. and to see what our appetite for this is. But I was thinking of something different, Stuart, which is that if you look at the uh, attack on Iraq in 2003 or on Libya, uh, they, we took out the air defenses uh, right. with conventional means and not with cyber means. I've been told, though I don't know whether this is true, uh, that part of the reason is that we didn't use the cyber in Iraq was we might have taken out the whole French ATM system and we didn't know that we wouldn't. Right. So that lack of understanding of the full range of the effects of the weapons, not knowing the full consequences, I think is, has been uh, something which is made for a degree of restraint. Although, you know, again, the rumor is that the Israelis took out the Syrian air defenses. No, the Israelis, on the, on the attack on the Syrian reactor, that's definitely, I, well, not definitely, but I've heard that from many right. sources as well. So, I, yes, cabining the attack is tricky, although, you know, I have also heard uh, stories that if you want to attribute attacks in cyberspace, uh, it, for some players it's hard. But for U.S. attacks, it's easy because they're the only attacks that are so carefully cabined to avoid collateral mm-hmm. damage. Uh, uh, and so we may not think of that as a unique feature of our uh, technology, but we've made it one. Uh, mm-hmm. um, so that's another issue that I wanted to uh, talk about. And you, you touched on this in the, uh, in the paper, uh, is the enormous importance that law of armed conflict has come to play in our military generally, and the role it's playing mm-hmm. here uh, in the context of cyber, I think it's a, a very bad role because it's preventing us from actually thinking about how to win uh, a cyber war. Um, it, but you've, you've got this long history in nuclear weapons. I can't imagine how you square the use of nuclear weapons with proportionality and the, the, the fashionable doctrines of law of armed war, warfare. Um, it, was anybody in the 60s and the 70s actually thinking about how to square our strategy with the law of armed conflict? They thought about it and they expressed it, but uh, not very successfully. You read somebody like Albert Wolstead or Freddie Clay and so forth. They were they would argue that attacking cities was immoral, and therefore you needed to attack uh, uh, forces. And uh, uh, so that there was an effort to do this. I think in the long run uh, that it may not have made that much difference. If, if Bundy is correct that, uh, that, that an attack on a city was going to be devastating and therefore was deterring, it might be that that's that all this effort of nuclear theology that we went through uh, didn't matter all that much. I, I I suspect that's right. If you're thinking you might be nuked, uh, uh, and you don't take much comfort from the idea that they're actually aiming at your forces, because your forces are likely to be in cities that uh, uh, will get wiped out too. Well, and there's also the the, the point that when uh, when you don't know what's going to happen. You may want, uh, you're, you're somewhat more cautious. There's a, this famous quote where Alan Entoven, who was in uh, one of McNamara's whiz kids, was arguing, I think, with, uh, I think it might have been LeMay, but some general in the Pentagon about nuclear effects and doctrine and so forth. And finally, this young whiz kid says, 
General, I've fought as many nuclear wars as you have. Yeah, no, I thought and, that was a great quote. I, I, I and, love and that. And to some extent, there's a little bit the same in cyber, which is that if you take real large-scale cyber, which is equivalent to a kinetic attack that kills a lot of people, we don't know much about it. Well, yes. Um, but, me, I, you know, I would, I, I would argue that Mandiant has fought more uh, cyber wars than anybody in the <laughs> Pentagon. Uh, there are there are cyber attacks going on, and we know roughly how they work. Uh, mm-hmm. And yes, it's true, they've never gotten to the point uh, where we would feel under attack, uh, deliberately so, perhaps. But it, they've certainly got to the point where they've demonstrated that it could get a whole lot worse for us. And no, I think I think that's right. If you, but then I I would distinguish cyber attacks from cyber war. In other words, I'm I'm right. setting okay. a threshold which is which is somewhat ha- higher. And I think your point is right about cyber attacks. But uh, if you let me spin a scenario for you. Imagine that uh, Japan or China sink its a ship of the other or down a plane of the other off the Senkaku Daiyu Islands. And uh, the Japanese use Article 5 of the treaty. They say, bring in a ship. We move a carrier closer. The Chinese, seeing the carrier come closer, uh, we see movement, which unveils one of their shore to mm-hmm. ship uh, ballistic missiles. Right. And we can either take it out with cyber or kinetic, we, a cruise missile or by a cyber attack. Somebody in the briefing room is going to say, if we do it with a cruise missile, there's going to be kinetic effects and so on, so much collateral damage. I think we can do it by a cyber attack on the phased array radar that they rely on without any deaths. Isn't that better? So suppose we do that, and then we have to ask, will the Chinese see it as... Better or worse? Yeah, no, but as we we understand what we think is escalation... Uh, minimization and right. caution. We have no idea whether they'd see it that way or worse. Yeah, I, 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 I you're right. I, and my immediate assumption was, if something doesn't blow up, it's going to take people a while, a little longer, to decide they've been attacked, and that gives more time for uh, cooler heads to prevail. But you're quite right; they could not say, of this ship, not of this carrier keeps coming forward uh, when you after right. and your radar has gone down. Right, and, and and at which point, uh, if you are the Chinese, you say, okay, they've unleashed cyber warfare on us, and mm-hmm. we can do the same. We yep. need to show them that there are no that there are costs to yep. doing that. Let's see if we can uh, take out the SCADA system that runs the nuclear uh, power plant and on then, board the carrier. And then the interesting question is, will you have intra-domain retaliation or what's called cross-domain retaliation? Right. Those, why should they keep it? Inside cyber. No, right. Suppose they, the choice of moving out of the cyber domain to the kinetic domain is open for either side, and we don't really understand their doctrine or even ours about how we would handle that. Well, clearly our doctrine has to be that if you hurt us badly enough with a cyber attack, we will use kinetic force. Which we've said. I mean, right. we, we've said explicitly you reserve the right to use any means but so that's the, we, we've introduced cross-domain yeah, retaliation right. and i think others would say the same i am struck and i tell this story about how the horror at um, destruction of civilian ter- uh, uh, cities from the air led to the pause in uh, uh, attacks on london for example mm-hmm. for nine months uh, and it was finally just a miscalculation about what it would take 
to appropriately retaliate. And, uh, you know, Churchill, there was a navigation error. Uh, the bombs fell not on the shipyards, but on the, the financial center. Um, so Churchill ordered that night an attack on Berlin. And I, I thought this was really fascinating. It shows that politics goes on in wartime. The problem with that is it was really embarrassing to Hitler. Because mm-hmm. he'd said there wouldn't be those things, and so he had to react very aggressively, and he brought the blitz, uh, and uh, um, and so you never know when one miscalculation about how to gauge mm-hmm. retaliation will yep. lead to just a complete breakdown. Right. And I think that's surely true with weapons that where the advantage is always with the aggressor or with, yeah. the, with the offense, uh, which is true of the bomber, true here. Uh, and uh, it may not win the war, but the asymmetry of the capabilities is going to push us into an escalation that feels controlled and isn't, is mm-hmm. my fear. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Um, it, so the other thing you talked about, and I thought this was uh, absolutely uh, true, was that uh, uh, the unintended consequence of civilianization of the technology uh, was to uh, uh, of the nuclear technology was to build a set of private profit-motivated actors who systematically captured their regulators uh, and developed their own agenda, which was profit motivated uh, that w- sometimes worked at cross purposes to US kind of non-proliferation goals and the like uh, and that surely is true in uh, the area of cyber where uh, we didn't even create the industry uh, we're just riding on it yeah i think it's even more so in cyber if you think of the fact that uh, the nuclear uh, technology starts inside the government and then we deliberately push it out and then after it's pushed out we create this interest group, which has interests of its own. Cyber is almost the other way around in the sense that, uh, what is it, 90% of the Internet is, is private. Right. Uh, the government is sort of trying to get a little bit of, of a hold on here. We have this enormous vulnerability in the private sector, but it affects all of us. Yes. So the one of the responses on the part of the Chinese to this is they've privatized their War and espionage capability, they, mm-hmm. they, uh, or they've allowed people to develop um, multiple income streams from carrying right. out uh, these attacks. Uh, uh, whereas we've tried to keep it, you know, you know, people wearing uniforms or mm-hmm. at least ties. I uh, and I wonder, you know, given that we're out already drastically outnumbered, whether it makes sense for us to do this. This is one of the reasons why I tend to be an advocate for letting companies who are under attack do more, because they're motivated, and as long as you've got some idea that you can control their their behavior, uh, uh, bringing those forces to bear on an attacker um, adds to your defensive capability. Hmm. Well, I think there may there may be some room there, after all, if banks or securities firms uh, see a source of malware from the given address or it's repeated, uh, they can put it on a sidetrack or in a sandbox or something. So, or they drop it or they delay communication. So it doesn't, even if you don't have hack back in the sense of I'll zap your computer. Which but you at least have the you, ability to, to, yeah. to, to sinkhole this stuff. Well, yeah. the, there are rumors that during those attacks, the, the DDoS attacks, you know, my impression is that the U.S. response to that was quite ineffective. Uh, uh, the, that uh, we 
started demarching a lot of people and saying, you know, there are um, machines in your uh, territory that are part of this. Can you stop them? And they would send Officer Plot out to, to, to look and to say, you know, is there anything wrong with this machine? Can you help us? And they knocked out a quarter of the attacking machines, which is just, you know, not um, helpful. Whereas it would have been possible to hack those machines and maybe even take over the, the networks in some mm-hmm. cases, uh, um, which for international law reasons, apparently we didn't do. Um, and the banks were apparently pretty impatient with that. And there, there are rumors that some effort, some private effort was made to stop the uh, uh, attacks more directly. Uh, uh, and uh, the rumors go to the more or less along the lines of uh, the way to do this right is just to Hire the Israelis and don't ask too many questions. <laughs> so. Simplify things. <laughs> exactly. And that's probably good for their industry and good for their defensive capability. Yeah. Um, so before we finish up here, I uh, want to ask you about the conference we were both at uh, because uh, it was talking about remedies for cyber espionage. And since then, the administration has uh, uh, put out a, a, a an OFAC sanctions program. Uh, and uh, I wondered, uh, what you thought about the, this, it, it, you know, it strikes me as kind of innovative, um, uh, but I, there are undoubtedly some questions from a strategic point of view about how effective it will be. Well, it, I, it's interesting. If you, it, as I understand the new sanctions, which I think makes sense, uh, it's, it, the problem of attribution is probably not going to be the key pro- difficulty. No, it looks like we're getting much better at We're that. getting better at attribution, but even when you have attribution that satisfies us, are you going to have it that satisfies the audience you're trying to reach, whether it be the the opponent or a domestic audience or third parties? And as you try to improve that uh, your uh, your presentation of the attribution, what are you giving away in terms of uh, programs that you don't want to give away? So I, I my theory on this in part has been. Um, Knowing that somebody's in your network seems like a big secret that you don't want to give away. But the fact is we know that the Chinese are in our networks. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's not a secret and we still can't keep them out. And so mm-hmm. uh, it may actually turn out that we can say, yeah, we broke into the North Korean network and, and we saw this happening. Uh, a, and as long as you aren't, aren't clear about how and when, uh, it may be that you can... Uh, disclose that without really hurting your sources and methods. I did talk to somebody at the at OFAC recently uh, and said, "How are you going to explain your decisions?" And they apparently they they've had this in the past. They use a lot of classified information, a lot of intelligence, and then they write an unclassified statement of facts that is designed to justify their determination, uh, get it, uh, make sure that it passes muster with the intelligence community and release it as part of their uh, uh, announcement, which mm-hmm. I think is about as good as it's likely to get. Mm-hmm. And probably mm-hmm. I, I would agree with you if your recommendation is those first few ought to be pretty detailed and mm-hmm. red teamed before they go out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You saw this in Sony where, where uh, even though the president basically put his credibility behind it, there were still a large number of people in the cyber community who were skeptical or finding reasons yeah. and so forth. I think some of that was 
pose posturing and and some of it was genuinely not understanding how good the US mm-hmm. intelligence capabilities were uh and my guess is that that will that noise will subside and the, the other part was that these are just people who you know are conditioned by the Iraq war hangover mm-hmm. to to be very skeptical uh and you can't completely blame them. I want to uh, close by asking you about your new book, Is the American Century Over? Uh, I think technically it is, uh, but uh, uh, the real question is, um, you know, I think I, my entire adult life I've been hearing that America's in decline and that, you know, the, the jig is up. Uh, and and yeah, we've been very lucky in our adversaries or the competitors we've worried about, but uh, China's the obvious one now. Uh, why do you think that the American century isn't over uh, uh, and the Chinese century may not quite arrive? Well, first, I think we, we have a tendency to, in psychology, to exaggerate in the 60s or 50s and 60s we thought the soviets were 10 feet tall in the right. 80s the japanese are 10 feet tall after the 2008 uh, recession the chinese are 10 feet tall but when you look more carefully at the chinese situation they have major problems i mean they have they have to change their growth model right. their growth is, rate is going to decline they have to change their growth model in a way which rewards innovation and domestic consumption more that's easier said than done. Yeah, the they also never quite got that, right. that, that mix right. They also have a demographic problem, which is that they're going to have, as the Chinese put it, there's danger of growing old before you grow rich. Right. And they have a political transition problem. Unlike uh, India, which was born with a constitution that solved this, uh, the Chinese are facing a point that around $10,000 per capita income, uh, there's a greater demand for political participation and they're reaching that now, and right. they really don't know how to deal with it. Yeah, I, 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 that all does make sense. And and uh, uh, she seems to have thought that the way to do this is to uh, double down on authority and uh, cult of personality, uh, um, which strikes me as a little uh, nostalgic. I think that's right. I mean, he's he's basically he talks about using market forces, but he's still preserving state-owned enterprises. And he's clamping down on the political openness that had a little bit of opened up under Hu Jintao. And uh, I don't know that that's the formula they need for this. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, it's not clear what the formula is. Yeah. I, I agree with you. It's but a even, if, even if China gets becomes larger than the U.S. as an overall economy in, let's say, the 2020s sometime, measured by exchange rates, not purchasing power parity, uh, it, you measure the sophistication of economy by per capita income, and we're five times richer than the Chinese per capita. So that if you look at an Apple iPhone, uh, $750, very little of that goes to value added in China. Or as the Chinese put it, uh, they're good at adding jobs, J-O-B-S, but they don't produce Steve Jobs. Yeah. And I think that problem is still there. They, Maybe. I, 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 you know, th- th- the size of an economy can make an enormous difference, even if the people in it are not that rich. Oh, it's it's one aspect of economic power. If you have a big market and you can control access to it, that is a very important aspect of power. But the assumption that just size is the source, the only source right. of economic power, misses the fact that economic sophistication, the quality of your technology, the depth and flexibility of your capital markets. All those things are very important in terms of American power. 
but you know, I, I, it, it is true that they're they've done best in the places that the central uh, bureaucracy wanted their economy to do best in. Uh, but if you look at uh, companies like Huawei, they produce very sophisticated uh, mm-hmm. uh, technology, which in head-to-head comp- competition with uh, Western companies has made them the biggest or the second biggest mm-hmm. uh, supplier in a lot of fields. Uh, so they're, they're, it's not that they're not going to produce really good technology of the sort that Steve Jobs might have produced, but it might not be in consumers, uh, consumer technology. Yeah, the question, I mean, there are lots of great Chinese entrepreneurs, Jack Ma is mm-hmm. another example with Alibaba. The question is whether they can spread this across the economy as a whole. And uh, if, they're, if, you're, if your formula has been imitation and theft of intellectual property, that actually creates a disincentive for developing the institutions which allow you to innovate. I wrote a report with Jim Lewis on exactly yeah. that, that uh, this is a, uh, all this espionage is a tax on uh, research and development. Right. It reduces the return. And so nobody in their right mind is going to invest in that, and, and including the people who are stealing it, right. uh, who will get to 95% as good as their competitors and won't quite know what to do next. Yeah. There's also the problem of, of the base. I mean, if you look at the rankings of, of universities in the world, take the top 20 universities as ranked by Shanghai Jiaotong University, 15 of the top 20 are American, none are Chinese. Until they've, until they've done something about that ratio, they're not going to catch us. Thank you for tuning into this special bonus edition of the Cyber Law Podcast. We'll be back in September with our regular episodes and exciting guests. Uh, the first episode will be a, another blockchain uh, uh, takeover because I'll actually be uh, out of the country when we're supposed to be restarting the episodes. Uh, and then we'll jump into some uh, really uh, exciting guests. Uh, uh, if you've got feedback or suggestions, Send those to cyberlawpodcast at Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, and follow us on social media, Twitter, LinkedIn, etc. Uh, when I hope that I can again begin circulating stories that I think are worth uh, talking about uh, in the news roundup. And you can comment on whether you want to hear about them. Meanwhile, I hope you'll uh, uh, give us a review. Take the hiatus if you've decided from the hiatus that you really miss us. Uh, well, go on iTunes. Go on on uh, Stitcher, go on Google Play and leave us a review because that's how people find us. Please join us again soon as we once again provide uh, insights into uh, law, government, and policy.